The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Meet the next generation of podcast stars with SiriusXM's Listen Next program, presented by State Farm. As part of their mission to help voices be heard, State Farm teamed up with SiriusXM to uplift diverse and emerging creators. Tune in to Stars and Stars with Isa as host Isa Nakazawa dives into birth charts of her celeb guests. This is just the start of a new wave of podcasting. Visit statefarm.com to find out how we can help prepare for your future. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. On a wintry afternoon in January 1882, in a nondescript home in a nondescript industrial New Jersey working-class town, two men met each other for the first time. They were both poets, one in his early 60s with a significant stream of published work behind him, and one in his late 20s who had published but one slender volume of verse. The younger man, Irish, had just recently landed on American shores to begin what was to become a lengthy lecture tour promoting his work and himself. The older man, American, in failing health, was curious to receive this younger poet who had requested the meeting. Sharing a bottle of homemade elderberry wine and in a meandering discussion, full details of which we may perhaps never quite know, Walt Whitman and Oscar Wilde engaged in an exploration of creativity, the writer's craft, and the intricacies and art of capturing the public's attention. When one first hears of this meeting, the natural reaction is to scratch one's head and wonder just what could these two men possibly have in common? And to remark just what an odd meeting to begin with that this must have been. But perhaps Walt Whitman and Oscar Wilde weren't so different in some ways after all. Both gave new form and language to experience in their writing. For both, the exact definition and representation of their sexuality has been debated, speculated on, and discussed. Both were among the very first literary figures to use their images to manipulate the public's perception of them and their work. And both with a fervor, dedication, and drive, sought fame and celebrity. And both Whitman and Wilde ultimately made us see what they wanted us to see. But there is another connection. For both Walt Whitman and Oscar Wilde, the city of New York and their time spent in its ever-pulsating and populated streets was an important and perhaps defining experience in their personal and creative lives. In this two-part show, Whitman and Wilde, we'll look at both Whitman and Wilde with two writers and scholars who know them and their work very well, and how, at different times, Whitman in the 1850s, pre-Gilded Age, and in our next episode, Wilde in the 1880s, in the very heart of the Gilded Age, we'll look at how both men experienced the city and how the city experienced them.
Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks we journey into corners light and dark for a look at America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. One of my favorite corners in New York on which to stand is on the southeast corner of Bleecker Street and Broadway, almost in Soho and on the edge of today's Greenwich Village. It's not that this corner is particularly remarkable, although it's possible to admire the dramatic cast-iron commercial buildings from the late 19th century that still line the streets, in contrast to modern trendy shops and corner delis. The building, however, that catches my eye and makes me stop here and pause is on the west side of Broadway and is today numbered 645 and 647 Broadway. Today, an apartment building with a deli and a retail shop on the ground floor, the building in the middle of the 19th century was the Coleman House Hotel. Once you know this, it's easy to see the image of a mid-19th century hotel still staring out onto a still busy Broadway. In the basement of the Coleman House was Faf's, a beer garden, sort of bar, sort of restaurant that was a gathering place for writers, artists, creative types, and those perhaps on the social fringe of the city and those that were inspired by them. It attracted a kind of cross-section of creatives of the sort that would become, as the century turned, the Bohemians of Greenwich Village, just a few streets and blocks away. Faf's was also a place where single men could meet other single men. Faf's is long gone, and it's below-ground space likely now filled with boxes and inventory for the shops above, But the exact spot where I stand on the sidewalk is what's most important now. Looking up at the old Coleman House facade and down to where Faf's existed below my feet, I know that I am standing just where, on many warm summer nights back in the 1850s, a young, passionate, virile Walt Whitman once stood. That is the magic of New York. If you know where to stand and where to look, you can see what those in that long line stretching back behind us into history once saw. The New York of the 1850s was a place that was growing with the speed of light, great commercial success, increased investment, industry, and immigration. And in many ways, it was the world of the once bucolic but now bustling Brooklyn just across the river that held the most interest, at least for the young Walt Whitman. But it was the pulse the energy, the drive, and yes, diversity, even then, of Manhattan that quickened Whitman's heart. But it was what Brooklyn was and was becoming that satisfied his soul. In this show, we take a look at the New York world that Whitman knew, the work that inspired it, and the dual cities of New York and Brooklyn and how he and the growing mass of the American populace were in fact one. Before there was a Gilded Age, There was a new America, and many feel that it was Whitman who gave the first truly American voice to that America. This was a Walt Whitman long before he exchanged philosophies with Oscar Wilde, but it's a moment and a time that informed so much of what he likely had to say. 
My guest today knows that world of both Brooklyn and Walt Whitman so well and how they came together, and I am so honored to have him here today to be able to delve into it all. Hugh Ryan is a writer, historian, and curator. His first book, When Brooklyn Was Queer, published in 2019, won a New York City Book Award and was a New York Times editor's choice. His most recent book, The Women's House of Detention, A Queer History of a Forgotten Prison, published just last year, has already won multiple awards, including a prize in nonfiction from the American Library Association. New York Magazine called it one of the best books of 2022. Hugh's work has won many prizes from organizations such as the American Historical Association, and he has received grants from the New York Foundation for the Arts, among others, and Hugh has had residencies at Yaddo and Watermill. He currently teaches in the MFA program at Bennington College. Hugh, I am such an admirer of your work and your perspective on history. I could not be more honored to have you join me here today on The Gilded Gentleman. Carl, it's a delight. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy. You're so welcome. And we've been talking about doing a show for a while. So I'm so glad that you are with me today. Well, I'm really excited. And I think that we have a lot to talk about. Oh, we have so much to talk about. (laughs) The Gilded Age is one of my favorite times. And I feel like listening to you talk about it, I've learned so much more to appreciate than even what I learned in doing my own research. So it's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Why, thank you so much. And I learn so much from you every time I have heard you talk. So I'm so excited we get to do it together. So your first chapter of When Brooklyn Was Queer opens at a very specific moment. It's July 4th, 1855. And and we're going to come back to that in just a moment. But you also open by introducing us to a young, that is to say, a 36-year-old Walt Whitman. And you devote most of your first chapter actually to him. And we're also going to talk about why. But as our first question here, what I want to ask you is to take that moment of July of 1855 and talk about what New York was, what New York was like at that moment, and really more specifically, what Brooklyn was and was like at that moment. We're pre-Gilded Age, we're even pre-Civil War, but yet this mid-century mark was an incredibly important moment. So can you talk about that? Absolutely. I think the first thing we really have to remember when we're thinking about New York City in 1855 is that Brooklyn and Manhattan are separate cities still at this point. And in fact, Brooklyn is exploding into national prominence right now, all because of something that actually happened a couple decades earlier in the 1820s when the Erie Canal opened up. The Erie Canal rerouted trade in America. Suddenly, New York City was handling more traffic, more shipping than Baltimore, New Orleans, and Boston combined. But by the time that happened, Manhattan was already over full. All the docks in Manhattan and the space around them for warehouses and businesses and the kind of support that this new trade needed, well, it couldn't fit in lower Manhattan anymore. And so they looked across the East River to Brooklyn, which in the 1820s was still a really small kind of town, you know, one of those original six Dutch settlements on Long Island. By the 1850s, however, that small town has become a huge city, the second city of the empire, as many will call it. It is full of day laborers coming for work, families looking for opportunities, immigrants, uh, folks from every corner of our state, our country, 
and increasingly, the nation. And this is the world that Walt Whitman, Walter Whitman, 36 years old, not yet a famous poet. In fact, he's a writer at this point, but mm, how good is the writing? You can read for yourself. I I will let others make their own decisions. But I would say that at this moment, he is not known as a writer. He's known as an editor. He's known as a publisher. And he's known as a lover of the city. And Brooklyn is becoming one of the most important cities in the world. And I think that's a really important perspective here, right? Because both Manhattan and Brooklyn were incredibly dynamic environments. They were growing from a commercial point of view, for sure. But they were growing from a people point of view, right? People were coming to the city. Of course, the great waves of immigration were beginning. But but as you said, people were coming from all over the world to the city, and that certainly energized him. So let's go back to the young Walter Whitman. It's so hard to call him Walter. We're also familiar with Walt. I actually really like doing it for exactly yeah. that reason. I think it sort of like destabilizes our picture of him, and we don't think about the like great old gay poet, you know? Oh, absolutely. I w- will call him Walter. So... Here he is, 36 years old. He's rushing through the crowds down on ferry landing on July 4th, 1855. Let's go back to that moment. Who was Walt Whitman at that time and what was he doing? Hmm. Well, Walt Whitman at that time was an editor. He had published an abolitionist newspaper. He had been a journalist for the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. He did a lot of different things. He was a house painter. He saw a lot of opera. He was an appreciator of the young men who worked along the waterfront. And he was actually rushing through downtown Brooklyn for a very specific reason that day. Uh, It was stormy out and he was trying to get to the printer, the Rome Brothers print shop, so that he could pick up the first printed copy of his new book, Leaves of Grass, which he had spent the last couple of months in the shop helping to typeset and choose the fonts for it and getting ready for the actual printing because he had that kind of experience before. And this book was going to be the thing that made Walter Whitman into Walt Whitman. And it was going to be the book that put Brooklyn on the map. And certainly did. And so can you, for any listeners that are not familiar so much with Whitman's work, can you talk about Leaves of Grass? Because that, like Walt, evolved over many, many years and many, many decades. Can you talk about what Leaves of Grass was and what it evolved into and what was important about it? So Leaves of Grass is a collection of poetry. What is incredibly important about Leaves of Grass in every iteration, because you're right, it did evolve, is that it's written in free verse. Whitman is really breaking with the European tradition of sonnets and structured meter that had been imported to the U.S. by all the Europeans who helped found the country, but did not really yet suit the American experience. A lot of critics in America had complained that while America had so much greatness, we had yet to develop a poet or a poetic voice, someone who could name things in the way that this new American world, new, of course, to the Europeans, not to the Native Americans who were already here, but new to them could be named in an evocative American way. And no one would have suspected that Walt Whitman would have been the person to write this new voice. It emerges almost seemingly out of nowhere from him. Of course, it's the city that brings it for him. But It's an evolving document, as you said. He's constantly adding new poems, subtracting poems, and developing his themes because the book really celebrates the life in new American cities and everything that was made possible by them. So all of the young men who met each other on the streets, all of the new inventions, the excitement of a city that brought together men and women of different classes from different places and different realities. And Whitman loved all of these things and felt both that they 
they were part of the world that was creating him and that they were all sort of inside him too, right? He contains multitudes. And this is what the book evolves in and out of, adding parts, taking parts out, adding more gay history, we might call it, to different points and then changing those parts. And he really wanted to kind of keep this book developing over the course of his life. I think he re-releases new versions of it like every couple of years throughout the 1860s and 70s. Now, one thing that you write about in that first chapter is you say that Brooklyn, like Whitman, was just coming into its own. Can you talk about what you meant by that? Uh, Because then I do want to talk more deeply about Leaves of Grass, because it seems that that represented a very specific moment in his life. Brooklyn was in that transition, like I mentioned. This money was flowing into it, and with that money came people. And with those people came ideas and possibilities and hopes for the future. And so in the mid-1800s, we're really seeing this boom in theaters in Brooklyn for the first time. We're seeing suburbs start to develop in Brooklyn, suburbs from Manhattan, right? We're seeing transportation develop in Brooklyn. We're seeing the city get this national and international reputation. Coney Island is already a resort for the wealthy down at the end of the seaside, right? All of these things are coming up as Whitman himself is coming up through Brooklyn. And so while all of New York City excited him, and and we'll get into his time in Manhattan in a moment, I would say that it is the energy of the urbanization of Brooklyn specifically that Whitman is channeling in Leaves of Grass. Now, I want to talk for a second to go back to your early comment. I want to talk about the role of the poet. And it was so interesting to me when you were talking about creating language and being able to name things. And we'll talk about some specific examples because Whitman certainly did that. But he was called the first American poet. He was also called the poet that Ralph Waldo Emerson was waiting for. Can you talk a little bit about that comment? What came before Whitman, because I think that makes his work and him even more extraordinary. Yeah, a few years before Leaves of Grass came out, Ralph Waldo Emerson wrote an essay about how America lacked a poet, lacked a namer of things, and that we needed one. We needed a soul, almost, who would redefine the world through the eyes of America. And Actually, Whitman read that essay, and as soon as his book came out, he sent it to Emerson because he thought... That's me. I'm that guy, which, I mean, the the amount of ego that takes, uh, I think, is another thing that really is what makes Whitman possible. He believes in himself in a true, strong, deep way. But he sends it to Emerson. And Emerson looks at the book and says, you're right. You are the poet we have been waiting for. And we can see this in Whitman's work, particularly in some of the queer poems that he writes, which are called the Calamus poems. We'll we'll get into those in a moment. We are going to get to those. But he really is trying to name these new experiences, to write what it is like to be the laborer who moves to the city for opportunity, to write what it is like to be the man crossing the ferry from Brooklyn to Manhattan, to see all of these different kinds of people, what he called an impalpable sustenance that was given to him by the city. And all of that is new and America had been waiting for it. So then do you think that it's fair to say that Whitman is an example of an artist that appeared at exactly the right time to be able to use his powers? Was this sort of a moment where, given where New York and Brooklyn were at a certain point and given where Whitman was at a certain point, it was this connection that allowed him to really interpret this? Do you think that's fair? You know, it's a funny question. Part of me wants to initially just say, yes, absolutely. It was the right moment, right place. He was the right person. Magic happened. But recently, I was actually reading a book called We Begin in Gladness, How Poets Progress. 
It's actually by this wonderful poet and essayist named Craig Morgan Teicher, who I happen to teach with at Bennington. And in it, he talks about how you can watch great poets emerge and that there's often a moment where they have the skills but have not yet met the subject. So they're theatrical, their flourishes, their techniques are there on the page, but they don't quite have something that equals their abilities yet. And I think that that happens in the life of most great artists, because if they don't find that subject that meets their abilities, then they don't become great artists. They don't have something on which they can practice their craft and show the depth of their thinking. So I think for Whitman, the city was that. And I think that had it not been that, it's possible that the Civil War, which truly inspired so much of later writing, could have jump-started the same kind of career, you know, or another opportunity. I can't say what would have happened had he not encountered Brooklyn in the moment that he did. But I will say that I think almost all great artists require some kind of confrontation like that, some subject matter that awakens in them their unique talent. Now, I want to go back to something you alluded to a few minutes ago, and I and it's the, to me, really striking use in Whitman of I, because there's, there's to me, such a double meaning in that. There, I means himself, but also there's this collective I, this collective America that's growing, this collective city that's growing. Can you, do you agree with that, number one, and can you talk about how that is interpreted or how Whitman interpreted that. I think that he is, like you said, speaking for himself, but also for the collective because he sees himself as of the collective, of the common people, of America. He is singing the song of America. And I think that's part of also why he chose this free verse, because it is more open. Anyone can read it. It doesn't have the kind of stilted rhythms that make sense if you've learned that those traditions are traditions for a reason. But if you've never encountered poetry before, a sonnet can feel really unlike human speech. Because Whitman wanted to sing in a voice that would carry to everyone, including the laborers and working class folks who he loved so much, who often were not very literate, or if they were literate, hadn't had the advantage of reading these centuries of poetry that came before him. So he sings in this voice that is open and freer for exactly that reason. He wants to reach all of these people. He wants to speak for them, with them, to them. In one of the poems in Leaves of Grass, he even says, this book is a message I am sending to the laborers and sailors who I love, and I hope it will reach them, right? So this is a collective enterprise. So let's go back to Brooklyn for a moment. I'd really like to talk about Brooklyn as a port community that you talked about at the very beginning. Can you lay out exactly how that grew and what that meant for Whitman and what he saw in this growing port community, what it meant to him personally, and then how he interpreted it? Ooh, okay, so some small questions there, huh? <laughs> oh, you can answer them. Well, like I said, the Erie Canal had come in. So we're seeing all of these shipping businesses develop along the waterfront in Brooklyn. Brooklyn has a very long working waterfront. It's almost 10 miles. It's all of these different neighborhoods. It's Red Hook. It's Gowanus. It's the Newton Creek. It's Williamsburg. It's Greenpoint. But it's also Bay Ridge and Sunset Park and Coney Island, right? Brooklyn is an island. I think we sometimes forget that New York City is an archipelago set in the water. So whenever we have to understand New York, we've got to start with the water. It's the water that brings business 
to Brooklyn. And on the waterfront is where Brooklyn begins to emerge. So it's also where this new American dense city first appears. And that's what Whitman loves, right? So, of course, that's where he goes. He goes to the ferry to see all the different kinds of people. On a single day, you might see Filipino cooks who had been picked up by a shipping freight in the Philippines to work as chefs on board, rushing to get food from the market for their ship. You might also see the white American sailors who were from every part of the country who had come to New York to start working on those ships, either as sailors or perhaps as riggers. Or maybe they were making the rope that was needed to hold the sails together. Or maybe they were making the illegal whiskey that the sailors wanted once they were done rigging those ships, right? All of this is happening along the waterfront. And businesses and life is emerging to support that, right? All of these, a lot of them young single men coming to the waterfront, well, They couldn't live with their families anymore. And probably they were living in a place they didn't have a lot of money. They didn't have a kitchen. They didn't have a hall to go to where they could meet other people. Those were bars. Saloons took up those places. So we see saloons springing up all along the waterfront for these men to gather and find out information, cash their checks, get clean drinking water, use a bathroom, right? All of this business is emerging along the waterfront because of the shipping that is coming in. And this is what Whitman is so excited about. This is the new American city that is really showing him what is possible. Rich people are coming there. Poor people are coming there. Immigrants are coming there. Native-born Americans, men, women, inverts, anyone and anything you can imagine pass through the ferry between Brooklyn and Manhattan. What I'm so interested to talk to you about at this particular point in our conversation is this notion of how Whitman created new language and this notion of labeling or naming or giving form via a language to many things, but in specifics, same-sex male relationships. Can you talk about how that language developed? Because in this time, there was no word as gay. Well, there, I guess, was a word gay, but it certainly didn't mean (laughs) what it means today. And there wasn't the vernacular that we can use today. But he gave form to that. Can you talk about that, what he did and how he did it? Absolutely. So in this moment, in 1855... America does have an idea of what it means to be queer, but it's not the idea we have today, and it's not fully formed or spread equally throughout the different communities. There's a lot of different words for it. It develops over the course of the 19th century, and I'm going to use the word invert. That's kind of the scientific sexology term that comes around. You might have also heard fairy or mannish woman, but the idea was this. Queer people were people whose gender identities were so far from what was expected that they were obviously different. Uh, We might think of it as combining what it means to be trans with what it means to be intersex because this wasn't just about your gender. It was believed it was your body as well. So if you were improperly gendered for what was expected from you as a Victorian man or Victorian woman, it was believed that your body was also different. You were, in fact, a third sex category. That's the idea of queerness in America in the time when Whitman is coming up and writing Leaves of Grass. What Whitman begins to realize in these new American cities is this. When these cities develop and all of these men begin to find spaces to spend other time with men and all of these women find spaces to spend other time with women, women's colleges, uh, women's eating places, in those spaces, folks who we today would call gender-normative homosexuals, men attracted to men whose gender presentation is pretty normal, and women attracted to women whose gender presentation is pretty normal, began to see each other. 
And in seeing each other, they began to realize they had a commonality, that they were, in fact, different from other men who loved men in the sense of the 19th century great passionate relationships between men that were not sexualized, these great friendships, quote unquote. So we begin to see through urbanization that we don't necessarily just have a third sex model operating, but that there is such a thing as homosexuality. We don't have the word yet, right? In the 1850s, we do not have this word. But Whitman, by spending time with these laborers, begins to see this community developing and realizing that they are a community with shared understandings, ideas, desires. And so he puts a name to it. In fact, what he says is that the love between men, the love that I myself am capable of loving, is adhesiveness. And there's a reason he chooses that word. Adhesiveness actually comes from the pseudoscience of phrenology. Uh, Whitman was really into phrenology. Phrenology said that if you touched someone's skull, you would feel these bumps and ridges, and through those bumps and ridges, you would know who they were. Your personality was mapped onto your body, right? This goes right back to what we thought about inverts. Your gender is your body. Your skull is your personality. So in that schema, the adhesive bump is the bump for great friendship. Again, friendship is the language that 19th century people have for discussing love between people of the same sex. We can't say how much they were sexual, how much they were erotic, how much they were physical, but these were passionate, intense relationships that led men to spend their lives with other men, women to spend their lives with other women. This is what Whitman is talking about when he points to the word adhesiveness, but he's bringing it specifically into now this homosexual context. It's still not our idea of gay, though, because he believes it's in your body, right? Your brain, your skull is different in his eyes if you are a gay person. So this is what he defines in Leaves of Grass. He calls the love adhesiveness. He calls the men who share it comrades or camarados. And he tells them in one of the sets of poems that you can exchange flowers with any person in the world, any kind of flower, but you will save this one flower, the calamus root, for men who love one another. Right? So he is creating not just language for what it means to be homosexual. He's naming that and also talking about rituals for it. How do we celebrate this love? How do we celebrate our community and recognize one another, identify one another, treat one another? It's not fully our idea of homosexuality. That's only going to come about when we get into the early 1900s when Freud helps us move personality out of the body and into the mind and we fully separate sexuality and gender. But Whitman sits at the beginning of our modern ideas of what it means to be lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, intersex, and all of that, a real break from what had come before. Oh my gosh, Hugh, there's so much more to discuss on this, and we are going to continue to discuss it, but we are going to take a brief break right now, and we'll be back. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Meet the next generation of podcast stars with SiriusXM's Listen Next program, presented by State Farm. As part of their mission to help voices be heard, State Farm teamed up with SiriusXM to uplift diverse and emerging creators. 
Tune in to Stars and Stars with Isa as host Isa Nakazawa dives into birth charts of her celeb guests. This is just the start of a new wave of podcasting. Visit statefarm.com to find out how we can help prepare for your future. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, and I am joined today by Hugh Ryan for a look at Walt Whitman's New York. Now, Hugh, I want to pick up on just what you were talking about before we went into a break. And scholars have been challenged even by labeling Whitman as gay, but despite the fact that there are some very overt and certainly erotic references in his poetry, but he never talked about it. He never discussed his sexuality. And there's a lot of debate and conjecture when and with who and what. Do you find that makes Whitman contradictory? No. I mean, I think that this is the 19th century, right? I will urge you to find me any two straight Victorians that you can prove conclusively were having sex. Find it. Find where they wrote that. Find where they said that. It's really difficult, right? So not talking about sex and sexuality and writing that down, that's not uncommon. That doesn't make him not queer. It doesn't make him queer either. It makes him a Victorian. That's how they lived. What I would say is that when we look at the preponderance of evidence from Whitman's life, things like early drafts of poems where he used male pronouns for lovers and then erased them and put in female pronouns, well, that seems pretty declarative to me, right? That there is something going on here that is about sexuality. Now, like I said, he lived in a world that did not have our concept of homosexuality. He, in fact, is helping us define it. So I'm not going to say he was gay, just like I really wouldn't say that any Victorians were straight either. But I will say that he had queer desires. He expressed them in ways that people who also had those desires would see and understand. And he was in community with so many other queer people who were driven to come to him, to talk to him. And these meetings, I think, tell us that he was in the queer community and was growing that queer community. Now, I want to go back to the poems that you mentioned uh, earlier on, the Calamus poems. Can you talk about what the Calamus plant is, why he chose it, and exactly what these poems consist of and, and why they're important and why we must look at them in understanding Whitman? You know, I think the calamus is actually a great symbol for understanding Whitman in general uh, because it's queer, it's fascinating, it's set in Brooklyn, and there are two sides to it on the one side. The calamus plant is a common river reed that grows anywhere where the water is. So it's all around Brooklyn. And its name is taken from this Greek myth, the myth of Calamus and Carpus, who were Greek lovers, young lovers who drowned in a river race swimming. And the reed grew where they had died. So it's got this classical illusion, this great friendship, this antiquitous homosexuality all caught up in it. And that's one side of Whitman. The other side of the calamus flower, which I think Whitman was not unaware of, is that if you Google it right now, you'll see 
it is incredibly phallic. It is obviously referential to male anatomy. So we've got these classical poetic allusions to it that reach back to ancient antiquity and myth and all of this stuff that Whitman loved. And then we have this kind of rough and tumble sexuality to it. So I think the calamus flower really captures the duality of Whitman himself and also shows how he wanted to speak to a broad queer community, one that might know the myths of Calamus and Carpus, or one that might look at this flower and just get what he wanted them to get out of it. Now, once Leaves of Grass was published and also the the Calamus collection, which was published within Leaves of Grass, what was the reception by the public to Whitman's work. This was completely revolutionary. Oh, it really was. And people had all kinds of responses. Emerson loved it. A reviewer in, I believe, the New Criterion said it was full of beastly sensuality. It was perverted. He lost a job at one point because someone was sent a copy of it years after it came out and they read it and were scandalized. And yet still other people were obsessed with it and came looking for him because of it. Folks like Edward Carpenter over in England, one of the uh, real proponents of like early homosexuality in England and other kinds of sexual freedom, reads Leaves of Grass and reaches out to Whitman. All of these people do. So the response was mixed obviously, but never small. He activated people who loved him and people who hated him. Now, one of Whitman's most interesting poems, I think, and I loved, I enjoyed so much reading your book, and I also listened to the audio version of your book, so I got to hear you just like today sitting next to me. But one that you talk about that I think is very interesting is Crossing Brooklyn Ferry for a number of reasons, because I want to emphasize the point again that Brooklyn and Manhattan were entirely different places. At this point, there was no bridge, and you had to take this ferry to go between them. But there's another reason, too, that's important about uh, crossing Brooklyn Ferry. So can you talk about what this experience would have been for someone to, to cross with the ferry and also what Whitman does in that poem that's perhaps the first time anyone has done? It's a beautiful poem and one I did not understand at all when I first encountered it in high school because you have to read it with an eye to what he was thinking and talking about. What he is celebrating in that moment is the the hustle and bustle, the, the life of a city as captured on its public transit. You know, you may have this experience in New York today. You get on the subway, you see 40 different people of different kinds and classes and looks and expressions, and it's exciting. It fills you with this energy. And then the train starts to move, right? And you're swaying, perhaps, while you're holding on to the pole. And you bump into a guy. And he's pretty cute. And then you bump into him again. And then you kind of notice him. And you notice him noticing you. And you kind of make eyes at each other. And maybe something happens. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it's just a spark that excites your day. This is the experience that Whitman had crossing the Brooklyn Ferry. In fact, he even says in that poem at one point that he had felt the negligent flesh of young men leaning against him and seen many that he loved on the ferry boat and had never said a word. And I think, just for me, from reading that description, from my life as a gay man, that what he is describing, perhaps, as you said, for the first time ever in the American canon, is the act of cruising, 
He talks about how he looked backwards to those who looked at him. And he's not only talking about a historical look backwards, right, that he wants to connect to queer people before him and to queer people after him, but to a literal look back. This man whose negligent flesh leaned against him on the ferry. Well, now they're looking at each other. Their eyes are drawing them together. Remember how I said that this was the first time where same-sex homosexuals, as we would define them today, were really starting to notice each other? I think cruising is the fundamental act of that noticing because cruising does not need language. Cruising does not require you to know anything about the other person. What activates cruising is your eyes meeting or both of you looking at a third thing and noticing each other looking in the same way. Cruising is beyond language. Cruising is beyond identity. Cruising is desire expressed in public. And that, that desire being seen by each other in a density enough city that it happens over and over and over again, that is what Furtz creates a queer community. And it's what Whitman is tapping into in this poem and in Leaves of Grass as a whole. Now, I want to go back to something that you said earlier on, which was a Whitman's healthy sense of ego. I'm understating that, right? Healthy sense of ego. But I want to talk about his notion of fame, his notion of celebrity, and how he created it. One of the extraordinary things about Leaves of Grass, particularly the first edition, is that his name is not on it. His name is not on the book. What we do have instead is a lithograph. We have an image of him, which he very consciously chose to put on. So can you talk about that lithograph? Can you talk about why he used it? And what was the beginning of him creating the persona or the brand of Walt Whitman? You know, that lithograph goes right back to that desire to talk to people who maybe do not have a great education. When you look at that lithograph, what we don't notice today but would have stood out to anyone looking at it, it says collar is open. He wears no belt. He's in a very jaunty sort of posture. And in fact, he calls this out. He writes a number of anonymous reviews of his own book, and in all of them he talks about like, how hot he is and how fun he is and how everybody would like him if they met him. You know, like he really has this sense of himself as a really great guy. And I think putting that picture in there was a way like a trial balloon, right? You're right. He didn't put his name on it. Maybe this was going to get him in a lot of trouble. He didn't know what the response was going to be. But at the same time, putting his photo in it was a way to signal to this vast community that he was, yes, a poet, but not a poet like they knew before. He was a man of the people. And he wanted everyone to know that. And I do mean everyone. He really, truly was one of the most photographed people in the 19th century. He wrote reviews of his own work. He sent books to other people. Later in life, there would be moments where he had a complicated relationship to some of the most queer poems in his book and tried to deny or repress certain things. But he always believed in himself, and he believed that people should read his work and that his work was for America. I mean, you have to have a certain amount of ego to say, I sing the body electric, I contain multitudes, I, 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 and expect that that I is also everyone else. But that's what made it possible for him to do what he was doing. What he was doing was so new. If he didn't have that kind of courage, uh, that lack of self-doubt, I don't think he ever would have been able to finish that book. Now. There are a few places today where we can still feel Whitman. When you wander around, there's a house in Brooklyn where he spent time growing up. But one that I find incredibly fascinating, and it's the one that I described at the opening of this show, is on the corner of Broadway and Bleecker Street. Now it's an apartment building. It was once a hotel. And in the basement was a beer garden called 
FAFs. And you and I have talked a bit about FAFs. Can you talk about what FAFs was, what it represented? And you shared with me a truly fascinating story related to Whitman about FAFs. Yeah, FAFs was an incredibly important spot for artists. It was a place where they came to drink, to socialize, to share drafts of their work, to party. Uh, It was a little disreputable. It was a little sexy. It was a little crazy. It wasn't a gay bar as we think of gay bars today, right? Because gay identity doesn't exist in that way. But there were queer people there, including Whitman and and others. And it was a place where they caroused. Uh, It was also, interestingly enough, remember, this is a Victorian time. Men and women are kept on different sides of the world. They're thought to be absolutely opposite from one another, and they certainly should not be socializing at bars at night. And yet in FAFs, women did indeed come in and socialize with men, not in huge numbers, but there was this kind of intermixing and excitement to that space. In fact, one of those women uh, is a woman who would become quite friendly with Whitman. Her name was Ellen Eyre. And a lot of scholars actually use their correspondence, very limited, but their correspondence suggests that they either had a sexual relationship, a flirtation of some kind, a hookup. And so that's often been pointed to as a very definitive moment where we can say, ah, Whitman was heterosexual or he had opposite sex interests of some kind. Until a scholar dug a little more into Ellen Eyre and found out that she was probably, by our terms today, a trans woman. But certainly she was someone who had been born male and presented as female in her life and interacted with men in those ways sexually and in community. So Ellen Eyre is actually another queer person who was drawn to Whitman and who corresponded with Whitman and who may or may not have had sex with Whitman, but certainly had a sexual flirtation with Whitman, a moment of excitement. And she even says in her letters that she sort of dissembled and presented a certain kind of person. So she may actually have been cluing Whitman in to her identity, or perhaps he already knows. We don't really know a lot about the relationship between the two. But these are the kind of people who are hanging out at FAFs. One of the things that I find so profound about FAFs was it's really today, it, it's the location is what would be on the fringes of Greenwich Village, right? Bleecker and, and Broadway. But that was sort of the beginning of this bohemian artistic experience of the village way before there was a village the way we know it today. Do you agree with that? It was kind of the beginning of that camaraderie connection that the village ended up being so famous for? What I would say is this. It's hard to put a beginning, right? Because I think things travel in waves in New York City. This is certainly a moment, however, in which this area, which isn't yet Greenwich Village, it's not either the East Village, it's sort of a central downtown, is having queer spaces, is having these kinds of excitements. It's on the fringes of the main city, which is down in the financial district, you know? And again, later, both the East and West Village will have these queer scenes. They're developed through other reasons when they happen later. But it is the fact that this neighborhood is constantly on the fringes, is constantly a sort of neighborhood for immigrants. Uh, We'll also get a a small but important black neighborhood centered around here later, a little bit later in the 1800s, right? It's a place of mixing. It's a place of cheap rent. It's a place where the police maybe don't do the best job. And all of these things happen over and over and over again in these neighborhoods. Now, 
The show that we're doing today is the first of a, a two-part show called Whitman and Wild. And of course, we're focusing on Whitman today. But in looking at both Whitman and Wilde, there were some very fascinating connections and parallels. And the whole the whole double show is is framed by a meeting that Walt Whitman had with Oscar Wilde when Oscar Wilde came to uh, New York in 1882 to begin his his lecture tour. And he wanted very much to meet Whitman. Now, I'm just curious to ask you, do you have any thoughts or opinions about that meeting and what, how Whitman would have viewed it or would have presented himself at that time? It's tough to know. It's tough to know what Whitman did behind closed doors. Uh, he had this kind of amanuensis at the end of his life, this guy who was like taking care of him and trying to like coordinate all his letters and get everything, you know, settled. And, and he would constantly tease that guy by being like, oh, my God, this thing, this thing in my letter, oh, I'm going to burn it in front of you. You know, so he, he was consciously both alluding to the possibilities of things that happened behind closed doors, particularly queer things, and then burning the evidence in front of this guy. So I think on purpose, Whitman kind of created this mystery. And I think that mystery was created for a lot of different reasons. I think in some cases it was maybe to try and hide or pull back from that queerness he had so celebrated in the earliest part of his life. I think we have all known people like that who have some experiences in college that they don't talk so much about when they're 40. But I think for some other people, it was also a chance to be like, well, I'm not going to say what happened. So maybe it seems even queerer what happened in between us. I suspect that Wilde and Whitman had a lot to talk about. They were both people who regardless of their desires were certainly seen as exemplary for the emerging queer movement. Whatever they personally were feeling, the reason that they wanted to meet each other was because they had such similar experiences as writers, as people in the queer community, as celebrities, right? Because they're both really foundational to celebrity culture. They both understood how to get attention. I mean, Wilde only writes something like, what, six plays, five plays? He's not this prolific writer. And yet today, he still continues to spawn all of these other works, these takes on his own stuff. He's so important, not just because his work is great, which it is, but because he knew how to sort of celebritize himself. So I think they had a lot to talk about. I agree. And we'll certainly explore that in, in the next show. I think that Wilde was fascinated by Whitman's sense of celebrity and fame. And I, I think that's very much what connected them. Yeah. And they used imagery uh, to do it. You know, people have said that both Whitman and Wilde were at the beginning of the first press photography. And they're both really consciously creating a style. You know, with Wilde, we have him embracing the dandy image, which had before that had kind of a heterosexual connotation. And he's twisting that, right? He's camping it in a way. He's taking what had been this like macho flashy dude style and queering it. Well, on the other hand, Whitman is taking this like macho laborer style and queering it. They are both kind of consciously creating a look, a style, a vibe to inspire other queer people. Hugh, what do you think is the biggest misconception people have about Whitman? Whew, the biggest misconception they have about Whitman. Well, I mean, I think a lot of people do think that it's debatable about his sexuality, right? That somehow, maybe despite all of this, he's actually 100% heterosexual and none of this means anything. 
that's certainly how he was presented to me when I learned him in high school. We didn't even learn that there was a controversy around his sexuality or anything like that. But I think when you look at all of this evidence, all of what he was doing, saying, the early drafts, the creation of language, the lists he kept of the men he met along the waterfront, pages and pages of lists in his diaries, he is foundational to queer life at his time and moving forward, regardless of what his own desires were, how they might have changed over the course of his life, and whether or not he would ever have identified as a homosexual as we think of them today. Are there particular poems or moments in his work that you personally particularly love? I mean... I love so many of them that it's it's hard to kind of pull anyone out. Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, though, which we've already talked about, I think because I love Brooklyn so much. You mentioned places where you feel Whitman in the city. I have to admit, I don't feel him in many of the buildings. That old home of his in Brooklyn should absolutely be landmarked, saved, and turned into an educational center. But it has all the poetry of aluminum siding. It is not a place where I feel Walt Whitman. I feel Whitman on the water. I feel Whitman when I go to Greenpoint and I walk along the little tiny bit of the Newton Creek that is still there, the places where you can still tie up a private boat and have a waterfront moment in this city. I feel him when I go out to Coney Island when the water is still so cold and I can imagine him standing there declaiming Shakespeare to the seagulls, you know? That's where I feel Whitman. So I have to ask you what has become a real trademark Gilded Gentleman question for so many of my guests. And it is, if you could sit down with Whitman yourself and perhaps have some coffee or whatever it would be, what would you want to ask him? And assuming he would tell it to you honestly, what do you think he would say? I think I'd want to ask him about the people that he met, about the community he saw himself in. Who was it? that he was speaking for and to, and not just everyone, not just America, right? But he's writing in this book over and over again that he's doing it for a reason. He's sending it to these laborers. I want to know about those people and his connections to them and to see him through his community and his community through him. Oh, gosh, you. We could just go on and on. Thank you so much for joining me today. I hope you will come back and discuss even more with me one day soon. Thank you so much it's for joining pleasure. me today. I'm really, this is so much fun. And honestly, I would love to come back. I will say that the Gilded Age is one you know a lot more than I do about. But if there's ever a time, I am always delighted to talk about it. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to do this particular show with you is, yes, we're talking about Whitman. But this, and some people may say, well, this isn't really the Gilded Age. No, it's not. However, so much of understanding about what was happening in Manhattan, what was happening in Brooklyn, what Whitman did is important to understand what came later, right? Yeah. I mean, I think of that moment as building the city that will later be gilded. Well, absolutely. And this rise in, in commercialization and all of those things. So it particularly fits with the the Whitman and Wilde concept, but it also lays so much of the groundwork for the, um, for the Gilded Age. So, Hugh, absolutely, please come back. We'll find so many more things to talk about. <laughs> Thank you so much, Carl. And to my listeners, please discover Hugh's work and his most recent projects at HughRyan.com. And to my listeners, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Karen Gannon. 
I invite my listeners to become patrons of the show at patreon.com slash the Gilded Gentleman. Your support helps me to manage the costs of researching, writing, creating, and producing the show. I could not do it without you. And I'll see you soon. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. 